Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. Well, creeps, it appears some of you either hadn't heard the Heather Thomas case from two weeks ago, or simply really enjoyed the redux or retake edition as we took another stab at telling the story with a more measured approach. Last time, we covered the most personal case to me, so today, creeps, I'd like to redo the most interesting or haunting case to me. Today, I'd like to, without the semi-autobiographical tone, tell you about the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. The summer of 1977 was just about to begin, and with that, the camping season. Camp Scott, a verdant, lush oasis for children seeking summertime refuge from their parents since 1928, was ready to open. The 410 wooded acres of Camp Scott would accommodate 30 staff members and 100 campers. A spinal road nicknamed Cookie Trail ran through the center of the camp leading to 10 camping units scattered throughout the woods. Those 10 camping units each had a counselor's tent and seven tents for campers, and each campsite was monikered with an indigenous tribal name. On June 12, 1977, the latest group of preteen campers arrived at Camp Scott to fill the tents with laughter and run through the forest. But for three random campers, their three-week camping excursion would tragically end much sooner than they anticipated. On that day, June 12, 1977, 8-year-old Lori Lee Farmer, 9-year-old Michelle Heather Goose, and 10-year-old Doris Denise Milner all tore away from their apprehensive parents, happily loading onto a bus, and along with 137 Girl Scout campers made their way to Camp Scott. When the girls arrived, they were all gleefully assigned campsites and tents, as usual and Lori, Denise, and Michelle were assigned to Kiowa Camp, Tent 8. There were 27 Girl Scouts in Kiowa, split between the seven tents. The seventh of those tents, which were placed in a semicircle, was opposite of the counselor's tent, making it the furthest away from the watchful eyes of their camp counselor, which was about 150 yards away and hidden behind the boundless foliage of the forest. The trio was originally intended to be a quartet, as a fourth girl was supposed to be in their tent. Due to a clerical error, though, she had been misassigned. That fourth girl was supposed to be moved to Tent 7 that evening, but due to an impending thunderstorm, camp counselors decided to postpone the move, which unknowingly saved her life. At 7 p.m. the night of June 12th, the storm was raging outside the girl's tent, but they were inside warm and happy acquainting themselves with the other campers over dinner in the dining tent. After eating, they, along with the other campers, returned to their tents to relax, and before bed, all the girls wrote letters to their families. Nine-year-old Michelle wrote, Dear Auntie Karen, how are you? I am fine. I am writing from camp. We can't go outside because it is storming. Me and my tentmates are in the last tent in our unit, 
My tent mates are Denise Milner and Lori Farmer. My room is shades of purple. Love, Michelle. Lori wrote to her family as well, and in part, she wrote, We're just getting ready to go to bed. It is 7.45. I couldn't wait to write. We're all writing letters now because there's nothing else to do. But it's Denise's letter that proves to be the most ominous. She wrote, I don't like camp. It is awful. Mom, I don't want to stay at camp for two weeks. I want to come home and see Casey and everybody. All the three girls, along with the rest of the campers, fell asleep that evening. And as the storm tried to tear the tops of trees, they were unaware that these letters would be the last written words of the doomed trio. At 1.30 a.m., Carla Wilhite, a university student working at the camp, heard what she described as a guttural moaning sound coming from the cross-section of trails leading to the showers. Carla got out her flashlight and with trepidation stepped out of her tent. She flicked the switch and turned her flashlight towards the woods. There were only trees swaying amidst the thunder and lightning. She swung her flashlight around towards the campsite, shining it in and around the tent, still nothing suspicious. So she went to bed, without alerting anyone. She later explained she thought it was just an animal, and if she told her co-workers they would be annoyed at having to walk all the way there through the suffocating darkness. They would think she wasn't up to the job of being a camp counselor. That choice would haunt her the rest of her life. Others that night at the campsite reported seeing a phantom flashlight bobbing and weaving its way through the woods, while others recalled hearing more moaning and groaning coming from the trees. At roughly 2 a.m., a girl in tent 6 lay awake as the tent flap opened and a figure with a flashlight stood in the entryway. The girl was one of four campers in that tent and the only one awake at the time. She watched silently as the figure stared down at the sleeping girls regarding the group for a second before closing the tent flap and walking off. The camper, confused and horrified, tried telling herself it was a counselor checking on them and just went back to sleep without alerting anyone. Around 2.30 a.m., a nearby landowner that evening reported hearing an unusual amount of vehicle traffic on his remote road near the camp. 3 a.m., a girl in the Cherokee campsite, which was separated from Kiawa by the Comanche camp, heard a scream. She checked her watch, and frightened, woke another of the campers in her tent to share her fear. They listened together for more noise but heard nothing aside from the storm outside their tents and went back to sleep. At roughly the same time, another girl from another campsite said she heard screams and someone crying. Mama, mama, mama. Unsure of what to do, she did nothing and went back to sleep. Three hours passed and the events of the night became irrelevant to those involved. The rest button had been pressed when they went back to sleep and they had woken up safe and unperturbed by whatever paranoid delusion they might have had that night. Carla Wilhite, the camp counselor who had heard the guttural moaning noises, left her tent at 6am and started jogging the path towards the same crossroad that led to the camp showers. That was the same area that she'd heard the noises in the night. Under some trees that lined the trail, she saw three sleeping bags and thought they were misplaced luggage from the new campers. But as she walked towards them, she saw the body of 10-year-old Doris Denise Milner. 
Carla's blood-curdling screams alerted the other counselors to the horrifically brutal and gruesome scene. A crowd quickly gathered, seeing Doris beaten, bound, bled, and partially nude. Camp staff were too fearful to open the other two sleeping bags, and police weren't even aware of the other two bodies until they arrived. A coroner opened them to find the other two girls. Investigators found both Lori and Michelle bound in a fetal position and wrapped in bloody bedsheets. Both girls had died of blunt force trauma to the back of the head, seemingly while they slept inside their tent. Denise, however, detectives determined had been led away from the tent still alive. Evidence showed that Denise was sexually assaulted and beaten so brutally in the face that indentations of the weapon remained on her face post-mortem. There was blood on the floor of her tent. This indicated that the girls were first attacked in the tent and then carried outside. At the scene, police found a large red flashlight with a single fingerprint on the lens, but unfortunately, investigators found no matches to that fingerprint. There was also a footprint left in a pool of blood in the tent, a male nine and a half size shoe, and rope, duct tape, and a long black hair were also discovered. Authorities began their emotional investigation, surrounding the camp with emergency vehicles. Parents were then notified that something had gone wrong and that they'd have to pick up their children at the council building. Parents of all 140 children started panicking, and rightfully so, driving to the camp and created a mile-long line of cars wrapping around into the entrance trail. Some frantic parents were too impatient to wait at the council building and drove to the camp itself. They were turned away and forced to wait hours in the sun as the camp was in lockdown. Terrified parents watching the emergency personnel were not told of the status of their children, and the campers weren't told that three children were dead at all. As counselors took the children on day activities, the police investigated and cleaned up the scene. The camp eventually evacuated entirely and campers were released to their guardians, with some of them being returned without their luggage. All of the children were confused. Why had their camp trip been shut down? The investigation went into full swing when the camp was cleared out the following day. On that day, June 14th, detectives noted that the murderer had attempted to clean up the blood and had smeared it around in the process. The blood wasn't only on the floor, but also the towels and mattresses. But who had conducted this assault of nightmaric proportions, especially while others slept not too far away? Police investigating quickly became aware of Jack Schroff, who owned a range near Camp Scott. At his house, black duct tape was found, and identical rope that was used to bind two of the girls. But Schroff had claimed that his home had been broken into prior to the triple murder. While he was aware of some items that had been stolen, he couldn't point out specifics to police. Jack Schroff was asked to take a polygraph by police, which he passed, and with a solid alibi, he was cleared as a suspect. With Jack cleared, they needed a new suspect, and it didn't take them long to move on. A man named Gene Leroy Hart was a local Cherokee man who was raised just a kilometer and a half from Camp Scott. He had been at large for four years since 1973, when he escaped the Maisie County Jail, for which he was imprisoned for kidnapping and the raping of two pregnant women, as well as four counts of burglary. There was no direct evidence linking Hart to the crime, but lead detective, Detective Weaver, went on record saying he believed Hart was 1,000% guilty. But he never did elaborate what had led him to that conclusion. 
Several days after the murder, local hunters found a cave which seemed to be lived in. There they found women's glasses, as well as pages from the Tulsa newspaper, sections of which had been found in the flashlight that police found at the scene, photographs that Gene Leroy Hart had developed himself while working at a photo lab at the Granite Reformery. Perhaps the most chilling clue, though, was a note written on the wall. 77617. The real kill was here. Bye-bye, fools. It took a year, but eventually Gene Hart was picked up by police at the home of a Cherokee man named Pigeon. He was arrested on suspicion of the assaults and murders. Searching Pigeon's home after their arrest, police found nothing. But on a second search at a later date, police found items that a camp counselor claimed had gone missing before camp began. Pigeon claimed that those items were never there and that they had been planted in his home. There was also suspicion that Detective Weaver was already in possession of the photographs that Gene had developed at the prison, and that he had also planted those in the cave to be found by the hunters. Many family members and local residents believed Gene to be innocent, and as a show of their support raised funds to support him during his trial. One key piece of evidence against him was the long black hair, which was found on one of the victims. A state crime analyst stated although the hair did match Gene's hair by color and coarseness, he couldn't ID a perpetrator with it back in 1977 based on that hair analysis alone. The fingerprint left on the lens of the flashlight found at the scene and the bloody footprints did not match Gene Hart. A jury eventually acquitted Gene Hart but due to previous offenses in the prison state system, he had a 300 year prison sentence already awaiting him and no longer than two months after, he was back in jail. There in jail, Gene Hart died of a heart attack. After Gene Hart, the case died. Police had no suspects, no plausible evidence or even circumstantial evidence to point the finger at anyone. They had hit a dead end. In 1989, Reverend Gerald Manley contacted the authorities to say he thought four men were responsible for ending the lives of the three girls. Manley provided law enforcement with the names of two of the people he said killed the girls, and while officials investigated the tip provided by the Reverend, they were unable to link the men to the murder. Manley said he went to Camp Scott with four men, whom he claimed needed his Christian influence. There he saw the dead body of one of the girls in the two sleeping bags that appeared to contain the corpses of the other two Girl Scouts. While police have been unable to corroborate the Reverend's story, Manley reportedly passed a lie detector test when questioned about his claims and provided the same account while under hypnosis. In 2008, DNA tests were performed on biological evidence collected from a pillowcase found at the Camp Scott crime scene, revealing a partial female DNA profile. Experts determined that this female DNA profile didn't come from two of the murder victims, although they were unable to conclusively exclude the third girl as the source of the biological evidence. While the sample recovered from the pillowcase may belong to one of the murder victims, it's possible it came from a woman who may have been present at the time of the killings. One of the victims' mothers, Sherry Farmer, told the newspaper, I've always felt in my gut that there was a girl present. Given the DNA results, you have to wonder if there wasn't also a female who took part in the murders. In addition to biological evidence reported from the crime scene, the authorities also found semen on a pillowcase discovered near the victim's bodies. The FBI tested the sample in 1989, 
and were unable to rule Jean Leroy Hart out, but they were unable to match him as well. In 2008, the authorities decided to test the semen again in hopes of getting more conclusive results. Unfortunately, after several decades, the DNA sample was simply too degraded for technicians to create a profile of the person who left it. That also meant that Hart still wasn't ruled out. And despite being found not guilty, many people still remain convinced he was the one who committed the killings. But creeps, do you want to know the most chilling and saddening detail of this entire tragic story? In April of 1977, two whole months before Camp Scott was about to start, a summer camp counselor at a group training session discovered that an unknown person had broken into her cabin and had gone through her personal belongings. The only thing missing curiously enough were all of her donuts, though. In their place was a hastily scrawled note that would prove to be foreshadowing for the horrible events that would soon take place and shut the camp down forever. The note consisted of four or five pages from a tiny steno notebook. On the first few pages were simply written the words kill, kill, kill over and over again. From there, they continued to say that we are on a mission to kill three girls. A fake body was also found hanging on the property. This incident and the accompanying note was disregarded as the note also made mention of aliens. The whole thing was seen as a morbid prank. It was then that Camp Scott management made a decision that would unknowingly lead to the death of three young innocent Girl Scouts. They decided not to disclose what they misguidedly decided was a prank to parents of the campers for the upcoming summer session. Nor did they contact authorities. Tragically, the case remains unsolved to this day. So creeps, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash talesbycole, where we release a Patreon-exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every five-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors. <laughs>